0: Amen Take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 6 As we return to the Sermon on the Mount and return to the Lord's Prayer We have been in this sermon for many weeks We've been in this prayer for six or seven weeks And we're talking about the essence of prayer Now It's a great thing to be talking about in the life of our church right now because we're about to enter into one of the phases of our church where, as we spoke of during the Sunday school hour, prayer is going to be most essential. Our dependency and leaning upon Christ is going to be magnified over and over again in these next uh, months and years to come as God moves us forward to provide for us what He has, I think, planning to provide as we seek His face. Well, we looked at this prayer very methodically, phrase by phrase. We saw that when the Lord started out teaching his disciples, and by extension, teaching you and me how to pray, he started by saying, your main focus, your first focus, must be upon your heavenly Father. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. And we saw in those verses that, that God, Jesus is saying that when we approach God, we first and foremost approach in a spirit of worship. Even in our individual prayer life, not only when we come into this place as a body, but when we pray and when we enter into our prayer time alone in our own home, we are to come before Him with a spirit of worship. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed, holy be your name, recognizing the attributes and the realities of God of who God is. Jesus says that is vital for you to understand. That is vital for that to be the beginning point of every prayer that you make. And then he goes on to say, to pray for God's expansion of his kingdom. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's so important when we come before God that we come submitting our wills to his will. That changes prayer altogether from what we normally do. For all too often, we come to God in prayer and we say, God, this is what my will is. Will you kind of adopt it and adapt it to your program or to your kingdom? Lord, I'd really like for what I want to be what you really want. Now, the right prayer would be, Lord, I would really like for what I want to be conformed to what you really want. That's acceptable. But typically we mean, Lord, I want this so badly. I want this with all my life, with all my soul. And so, Lord, I just want to ask you to sort of adopt my program as your program. Jesus says that is a misunderstanding and a misapplication of prayer. Prayer is to be, Lord, would you take my will, would you take my wants, would you take my desires and shape them, even as the choir is saying, like a potter shaping the clay, shape my will to be what your will is. Folks, that's revolutionary in your life when you learn to pray that way. Changes everything. It changes your outlook toward those who are lost and to those, toward those who get on your nerves and those who really irritate you on a day-in and day-out basis. When you start praying, Lord, I want your will to be done, and he starts showing you that his will in your life is that you minister to those people, you love those people, you share the gospel with those people. Lord, make your will my will, not the reverse. I don't come to you, Lord, saying my will's perfect. You are the perfect one. You are the sovereign God. You are the all-knowing God, the omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, omnipresent, omni-everything God. And, Lord, I want you to make my will to be what your will is. Mold me like a potter molding clay. That your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in heaven it is done perfectly. Angels and the saints who are there with him now do his will perfectly. They obey him perfectly. They worship him perfectly. And Jesus is saying, pray that that's what will start taking place in this earth, on this earth. Starting right here in our own church. Starting right here in your own life. And then he said, give us this day our daily bread. He said, nothing wrong with bringing your needs, and bringing your requests before God. But you know what? I'm convinced that if we pray rightly, verse 10, verse 11, will become a very much shorter part of our prayer life. Typically right now, if you evaluate your prayers, more than likely that takes up the bulk of it. Lord, give me this day. Here's what I want. This is what I think I need. This is what I want you to do. Lord, would you do this? Would you heal her? Would you take care of him? Would you, you know, all these things I want that I think are my needs, when we really come before him and say, Lord, your will be done in my life and on this earth as it is in heaven. Now give me this day our daily bread. It's an acknowledgment that he does provide. It's an acknowledgment of his graciousness. It's an acknowledgment of his provision in your life. More than it is even saying, I'm going to categorize these things. I'm going to list these things off and tell you something you don't know, Lord, because he already knows it. Jesus said he already knows what you need before you even ask. So that's really an acknowledgement of God's provision. It's a prayer. It's a praise time. It's a thanksgiving time. Then a couple of weeks ago before we went to Peru, I, we dealt with and forgive us our debts, and we've also forgiven our debtors. And, and that is that when our hearts are forgiven, we are forgiving. When we really know the fullness of God's provision of forgiveness in our life, forgiving us for all the multitudes of ways that we have sinned against Him and and have become debtors to Him because of our sin, then we will become forgiving toward others who hurt us because we've never been hurt to the magnitude that we have hurt the heart of God through our own sin. And then he comes to today. And he says, And Lord, do not lead us into temptation." but deliver us from evil. We'll stop there and finish that next week. On uh, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. But today I want us to think about, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now that may sound a little strange to your ears when you first listen to it. You're praying to Almighty God who cannot sin and who does not cause us to sin and who does not push us into sin. And he's he's saying, now pray in that same way. Lord, don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What in the world is Jesus talking about? We know that James said, who's the half-brother of Jesus and, and who wrote that little epistle of James, we know that his statement was this. In James chapter 1, verse 13, he said, Let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. <coughs> Give me, it brings forth to death. James says, listen, God can't be tempted to do evil because he cannot do evil. Evil is contrary to his very nature. And as he cannot be tempted to do evil, cannot do evil himself, he does not tempt anyone to do evil. So where does that come from? Well, James says the best part of it, the most part of it, comes from your own lust. That's where the temptations come from. Lust rises up, and by lust there, it it carries with it the connotation of of sexual lust that we would talk about, but it also carries with the connotation of lust for anything. It can be lust for power. It can be lust for influence. It can be lust for money. It can be lust for possessions. It can be lust sexually. It can be lust for, for just having a better name among people. Just whatever is driving you, that lust tempts you to be disobedient to God and to look out for yourself first rather than seeking to know God's will. That's what he's talking about. So we know that God doesn't tempt us. And James says, while Jesus is going to deal with another source here in a minute we'll look at, but James says you need to realize that a lot of that just comes from within. You don't even have to be tempted by the devil many times. You don't even have to be led astray by somebody else. Now, People will, lead, people will tempt you to be led astray. You know that. Peers and those who are involved in sin will try to pull you into it so that they can feel better about their own sin. So there's a source of temptation that comes from our peer groups and our friends. There, there's a source of temptation that comes from just within. When we desire, when we lust after things that are improper and out of God's will. And, and, and there's a lot of ways that we can be drawn away to sin. You know, one of the things the prophet one of the prophets said, I think it was Jeremiah. He said, you know, the human heart is very deceptive. The human heart is very very deceptive. Let me tell you what I mean. You're here this morning and and you're a Christian, I hope. Many of you are, some of you may not be, but let's just speak from among those who know that they're a believer. It's very easy in our walk and very easy in our daily life, especially if we're not keeping our eyes firmly fixed on Christ and firmly in the Word to say, you know, (coughs) I could never do a sin like that. I know somebody that did something horrible and horrendous, but, you know, I could never do that. I would never fall into that kind of sin. I would never be unfaithful to my wife. I would never be unfaithful to my husband. I would never embezzle for my employer. I would never take a life. I'd never do any of that stuff. I am a Christian. I am beyond that. I'm above that. Let me tell you something. That is a deceptive heart speaking to you. Every single one of us is capable of falling into some of the most horrendous of sin. You know, if you look in the Bible... And all of the great heroes of the faith, there is never a point in any of their life where you would look at them and you'd say, hey, they are perfect. They don't have a struggle with sin. They'll never have to sin. They don't have any of that. I had Brother Scott read as our scripture reading this morning from Psalms, uh, Psalm 51. You know what Psalm 51 is, I hope, and you heard it read this morning. It is a psalm of great passion and great, great enthusiasm toward confession and repentance. It was written by David. You knew who David was. David was the, the king of, uh, of Israel. David was specifically chosen by God when evil Saul was in, in power and said, David, you will be the king and, and you will be a man after my own heart. And David wrote all these beautiful worship psalms. I mean, j- just go through the book of Psalms. Most of them he wrote. And you just hear this heart that pours itself out to God, that trusts God totally and without exception, David is a man that you would think would never be capable of sinning. But if you go back into the historical books of Israel and when, king was, when David was king, you know the story about how he was back at home and his troops were out and fighting and fighting the battle. And, and David was there and he looked down off his roof to another roof and he saw Bathsheba bathing there. And immediately in his heart began to lust after her. And he sent for her, and he brought her in, and he committed adultery with her. And, and in doing that, that was bad enough, he conceived a child. Now, Bathsheba's husband was Uriah, who was off doing battle with the with the armies where David should have been. And he was there, so David decided he had to cover up his sin. Here's the deceitful heart coming in. I'll cover up my sin. I'll invite Uriah back to give me a... a, 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 a standing on the battle, give me a, an update on what the battle is. And while he's here, I'll say, you've already got a couple of days before you go back, go see your wife and be with her. Now, Uriah, in many ways, was, was more of a faithful man than David was at this point in his life because Uriah, when he came back, he said, no, my men are out fighting. They're out doing battle right now. How can I come back home and go be with my wife for a couple of days and enjoy the benefits of that? I will not do it. He slept on his doorstep outside of his house. David saw that he wouldn't, wouldn't give in to what David wanted to do in order to cover up David's sin. He went back into his, to his troops. When he got back there, we, we find that, that David was so intent on covering up his own sin, he sent word to the, the, to the leader out there and he said, Listen, I want you to send Uriah and, and a, a group of men up to one of the, most, the weakest points in our defenses and I want you to send him in the battle so that he'll be killed. And that's exactly what he did. So he went into battle. So right here in just a very short version of a portion of David's life, we find David lusting. We find David committing adultery. We find David lying. We find David trying to cover up his sin. We find David murdering, having Uriah murdered to try to cover up the sin that he had. I mean, let's face it. He almost hits all all ten right there in one time, all of the big ten. Nathan knows about that. Nathan is a prophet. Nathan is one who speaks the truth of God. And Nathan goes into David and he tells him a story. Now you understand, you need to understand the background here a little bit because we think in terms of the United States of America. We think in terms of we have a judicial branch and an executive branch and a legislative branch. Well, in a monarchy as such as David was over Israel, he he was all of it. He not only made the laws, he he executed the laws, and he passed judgment when the laws were broken. And so Nathan comes into him, and and rather than just confronting him, which would have been acceptable in many ways, and saying, David, you lying, stealing, murdering, adulterous king, and having David chop his head off before he got anything else out, he goes in and he says to David, David, I I have a, uh, King David, I have a, I have a um, situation that I need for you to pass judgment on. He, the king passed judgment. So he goes in. He says, there was, there's this man out here in your kingdom who, who is wealthy and has flocks and has land and has everything. And he has a poor neighbor who has just one little sheep. Just one little sheep that he loves and he treats it like a pet and he cares for it and he cradles it in his arms and, and all sorts of great things like that and, and, and the rich man had some company coming and he didn't want to kill his own flock so he took from his neighbor that one little sheep that he had and he slaughtered it and he prepared it for his guest. Now in your judgment, king, what should be done? David angry it's funny how a lot of times when we see our own sin in the lives of others we get angry about what it is in their life you ever notice that you know we've got this sin we're trying to hide we're trying to cover up and we see that sin in somebody else and we are very quick to say oh they shouldn't be doing that oh oh they're terrible people you know i mean it's real easy to do that but all all along it's just a reflection of our own sin so, David became angry and he said, You know, that he, he must be punished. He must, he must pay back all that he, fourfold of what he's taken from him. And all of that was in accordance with the Juda, uh, Judaic law. So, there's nothing wrong with that. He must pay it back fourfold. He must restore to that man more than he took from him. And then David said, And he deserves to be put to death. That was David's own anger. That was not in the law. Nowhere does the law say you ought to be killed, put to death for stealing a the lamb. There are some things you should be. But not that. And after David ranted and raved just a little bit and talked about how terrible this man was, Nathan, I can almost see it. He had to have a long, bony finger. I can almost see him saying, King David, you are that man. Here was a man that the scripture says was a man after God's own heart a man who, who passionately wrote worship psalms that we sing and we read and we rejoice in and we, they lead us to the very throne of God. Here was a man who was a man after God's own heart. And yet he fell into some of the most horrendous sin you can be imagined. When David pointed that finger at him, or excuse me, when Nathan pointed that finger at him, when David saw his sin confronted, he broke down and he wrote Psalm 51 in which, in writing that, he cries out to God. He says, God, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Not my salvation, your salvation, Lord. You're the savior. It belongs to you. You do it. He didn't say, save me again. He didn't say, give me back what I've lost and as far as my salvation goes. He says, Lord, just restore to me the joy of your salvation. He said, take hyssop, which was a horribly sponge-like, rough, crude type of cleaning instrument. Take hyssop and scrub me, and I'll be whiter than snow. And he's not talking about scrubbing my arms and my back. He's talking about scrubbing my very heart, my very inward being. And I shall be whiter than the snow. Jesus says when you pray, pray in this way. Lord. Do not lead us into temptation. You see, God doesn't tempt us, but but God does allow us to be led into temptation many times by our own lust, sometimes by Satan, sometimes by our friends. And what, what Jesus said here is you need to be on your face before God every day, every moment, every breath you take saying, Lord, protect me from temptation. Protect me from what you know will cause me to fall. Lord, give me strength to face what is down the road that I cannot yet see. If you're driving a car at night, It is a foolish thing to drive a car at night without headlights on i met somebody just a week or two ago out on highway 39 who decided that's how they wanted to drive i didn't see them until they were 20 feet away and they weren't exactly on their side of the road i had my lights on and i saw them in time and i got out of their way but you're foolish to drive without headlights on now headlights don't tell you everything that is out there tonight when I leave church about 7 or 7.30, I'll turn on our headlights and we'll drive down 80 and down 39 and uh, into Woods Edge Drive and we'll go home and and we'll have some headlights on. But the moment I turn them on out here in the parking lot, they don't tell me everything that is between here and there. They won't tell me if a cow's gotten out, as has happened on numerous occasions on thirty nine. And there's a cow sitting in the middle of 39. It won't tell me that when I'm sitting here at the church. It won't tell me if there's a wreck down there like happened last Wednesday night and and I need to be prepared to stop so that I don't involve myself in what has already happened. It won't tell me that from here. But as I move forward in my journey home, for about 20 or 30 or 40 feet out in front of me, however long that headlight throws, It gives me advance warning of what is out there. As I move forward, I can see what is there. I think, in every real sense, that's what Jesus is saying pray for. Pray that as you move forward in your obedience, as you move forward in what God has called you to do and called you to be, Lord, give me a set of spiritual headlights. Warn me, let me see the temptations that lie out there. Lord, you know what I'm most susceptible to. You know what it is, Lord, that I I most succumb to in my weakest moments and in my strongest moments. Lord, would you just lead me not into temptation? Would you give me some, some headlights to see what's lying before me so that I can avoid that by your grace and by your strength? Because that's what he's saying. Lord, lead me not into temptation. Let me see what's there. Let me be aware of my own weakness. Let me be aware of my own deceptiveness, telling myself, oh, I could never do that, knowing full well that God's Word says if you're not ultimately and completely and totally relying on His Spirit and His presence and His strength every minute of every day, every, every situation you face, you are as, as susceptible as falling as somebody like David was, King David, a man after God's own heart. Peter even said in one of his epistles, he said, Listen, be careful when you stand lest you fall. In other words, be careful in being proud. I'm standing. I am strong. I would never do that. Remember, Peter said that, didn't he? Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. And what did Peter say? <laughs> not me, Lord. I'm ready to fight. I'll pull my sword. I'll go to the death. If they get to you, Lord, they'll have to get to me first. I'll never, ever let you down. Within a couple of hours, he's standing by a fire, and a little maid, a little servant girl is saying, I saw you with him. I, didn't, I was not there. A later, somebody else said, Oh, yeah, if you're a Galilean. You were with him, you were following him. I don't know what you're talking about. And then finally, the little servant girl coming back again and saying, Oh, I know I saw you with Jesus, and cursing, he said, I don't know the man. And the cock crowed. That was Peter, folks, the apostle, the one who was in the presence of God physically as well as spiritually, who who saw Jesus do all the miracles and knew who he was and experienced him firsthand, touched him, hugged him, talked with him face to face. And yet in that moment of pressure, telling himself and telling Jesus, I don't care what happens, I will never deny you, he failed. Be careful when you stand, lest you fall, Peter would say. Jesus says, pray, do not lead me into temptation, but Lord, deliver us from evil. Now that last phrase is a powerful phrase, but but I contend to you that it's perhaps a little mistranslated, even in the New American Standard, which I think is the best translation available. If you have a, anybody have a New King James version? A New King James? You got one right there? What does it say, brother? In that last part of that phrase in verse 13, Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's really the right translation there. The word there, there there's a word for evil that's poneron. And panoron is where we get poinonia, where we get pornography, that's that abstract idea of evil. And poneron is an, is an abstract idea. It's, it's evil in a sort of a generalized sense. That's not the word Jesus uses here. In the text, he uses the word poneros. Instead of o-n on the end, it's o-s on the end, which changes that generic term for evil into a masculine noun. And so the proper translation of that is, and Lord, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And that word poneros is used in Scripture over and over and over again to refer to one person and one person only, and that's Satan, the devil, the tempter, the liar. You see, while our lust can lead us to do a lot of things, I told Wednesday Night Group about Brother Watson, who was uh, my first, I guess, mentor when I was called to preach. I was 19 years old when I sensed God calling me to preach, and he was the interim pastor at my church, and... He was already 81 years old then, and that's been, goodness, 40 years ago, so I'm sure he's with the Lord now. But Brother Watson was talking one day, and he was tearing with the church. He said, you know, I had a, had a pastor friend. He, he past, served most of his years in Lincoln, Alabama, which is about seven or eight miles from East Toboga. That'll get you on the map there. Uh, I'm sure you know where both of those are now. But uh, he he'd served there and said I had a pastor friend that used to pastor in the neighborhood come back to see him one day, and he said, well, I guess, Brother Watson, I guess... Uh, the devil is just as active in Lincoln as he's always been. Brother Watson looked at him and said, "Well, no, actually, the devil hasn't been active at all." God looked at him, kind of funny, and he said, "You mean, you mean everybody's been saved and everybody's come to Christ and and, and there's a re- revival in the community and everybody's trusting walking Lord?" And brother Watson said, "No, no, no, that's not what I meant." He said, but a few years ago, uh, Satan came back toward Lincoln and he got up there on Blue Eye Hill and he looked over into Lincoln and he said, hmm, now they're doing pretty good without me. And so he just went on and left because everybody was just seeking their own lust, their own desires, their own purpose. It can come within, from within, but it can also come from the evil one. Satan does tempt. Satan and his minions, his demons are real, folks. That's not some fairy tale. That's not some illusion. No matter what modern scholarship or modern psychology may tell you, oh, that's just an uh, illustration. It's just a symbol for evil. No, he's real. And Jesus says, as you pray to be delivered from temptation, you also pray, Lord, deliver me from the clutches of the evil one. Deliver me from the power of the evil one. Deliver me from being overcome by the evil one because he would seek to crush me and to destroy me just as he sought to do it with David. I want you to understand, David didn't just one day decide to commit adultery. And he didn't say, well, you know, I think a good thing to do today would be to murder Uriah. But rather, David let little sins captivate his life. He let little temptations. He should have been out there on the battlefield, folks. He was the king. He should have been leading his army. But he let laziness take over. He let complacency take over. He stayed back. And as he stayed back, he he wandered around his castle, his palace. And one day, probably rising late after partying late the night before maybe. I don't know the scripture doesn't tell us that, but there's the indication there. He was really lax morally at this point. He got up and he stretched and he looked out and because of his laziness, because of his lack of diligence, because he was not doing what God had called him to do in leading his army, those little sins led to a little bigger sin. sin. That bigger sin, in order to cover it up, led to a bigger sin. And that bigger sin caused him to try to cover that up with an even bigger sin. You see, sin is a progressive thing in most of our lives. In all of our lives. It's like the illustration of the acorn in the, the oak tree. You know, the, the statement is that out of a out of every little acorn a mighty oak tree could grow. That really seems kind of foolish, doesn't it? I mean, think about that. That an oak tree coming out of that little nut, but it does, and then it causes more. I heard someone say last week in a in a message I listened to, he said, How much easier it is to crush the acorn than it is to cut down and destroy the oak tree. What are the acorns in your life? Little things that you need to be applying this prayer to. Lord, do not lead us into temptation, but Lord, deliver us from the evil one. Crush this acorn. Don't let it grow into a tree. Don't let it multiply itself in other areas of my life. Lord, protect me. Lord, deliver me. Lord, let me know your work in my life every day. You see, that's the importance of prayer. Starting with worship, praising God for his name and his attributes and his kingdom, and and praying that his will be done in my life, that my will. See, when my will tries to override his will, it always leads to a temptation. Temptation. because I start thinking more highly of myself than I ought to. I start wanting what I want, not what He wants. I start demanding my way rather than His way. Jesus comes into this prayer. and He says, above everything else, worship God, seek God's face, pray for God's kingdom, be used to spread His gospel, but above everything else, in, in light of all of that, Pray, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Is that your prayer? I mean, there's some who really don't want to pray that prayer because, you know, temptation can really be fun. It can really be exciting. It can really be exhilarating sometimes, you know, when the flesh gets a hold and it just feels good. Jesus says, listen, pray. Pray, pray to be delivered from your own temptation, from the temptations of others, and from the power and the temptation of Satan. Let's pray together. Father, your word is powerful and sharp like a two-edged sword. Father, your word cuts sometimes in ways that are painful. It makes us look at ourselves as we are and to face our frailty and face our struggles, face our temptations, face our own lust. Father, bring us cleansing. Even as David prayed in Psalm 51, give me a new heart, create me a clean heart that desires only to worship you. Father, I pray for men and women here this morning that don't know you. I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit will open their hearts and open their eyes to see the Savior and their need for the Savior. And Lord, that they would just submit themselves to your grace. Pray for others, Father, who maybe have let the acorn sprout. And they played with temptation. They flirted with temptation. Lord, your Holy Spirit this morning is being a Nathan to them and saying, you are the one, you are the man, you are the woman, you are the one that needs to repent before God and turn away from that. Father, I pray this very day that your Holy Spirit will move in lives if that needs to be done and deal with them where they stand in just a moment, where they sit right now. Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For this is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.